So Dan, first couple of weeks and back to nursery, as you were telling us last week, how's it been going? Cool. Well, yeah, it's been a bit of a journey. I tell you, it really has actually. I mean, I'm sure other parents out there can probably relate. But first of all, we've had the sort of separation anxiety and the kind of drop-off anxiety stuff, which is which was pretty real. That was definitely real. Yeah. But we, we sort of done okay on that, I think. We got, got better. But the bit I wasn't really prepared for was just the illnesses. I mean, he has come back with every bug. We've had fever. We've had viruses. We've had ear infections. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I, I got snagged by one of them at the weekend as well. So all weekend and on Monday, I was pretty much laid out as well with one. So um, yeah, our household has, has not been in the best of health the last week or so, I have to say, which is, it's not been ideal. No, I'm sorry to hear that. No COVID so far? No COVID. No, no. That's um, we. I've got got a lot of tests here, so seriously <laughs> test, testing everything, and we're we're coming up negative. So that's that's good news. Enough of my woes. Why don't you tell us about your three minute commute, Mary? How's that? How's that one going? <laughs> oh, I feel bad, Dan. I feel bad leading on from that and talking about my lovely, lovely three minute commute. But you know what? It's 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 hardly worth calling it a commute. Like you, you can't really. It's not like you can get anything done. You can't open a book. You can't listen to a podcast. You can't even listen to one song. That's how short it is. I really can't complain. And you also, you're not squeezed together with other people catching the illnesses that their children have picked up at nursery. Quite, yeah. Yeah. So how does it, how does it go? Like literally you kind of walk out, what is it, turn left, turn right, straight on, cross a roundabout? Is it that, that's, that's the sort of size of it? It's literally come out my house. Everyone who I work with is going to know exactly where I live now. <laughs> come out my house, turn left, walk to the bottom of my road, turn right, cross a roundabout, go into the office literally that's it it's nice isn't it? i mean I, I guess the whole concept of commutes has changed a bit over the last year and a half and that's what a lot of us have enjoyed yeah short commutes for a while i've been working from home but you know I've, I've always sort of prided myself on having had some feel like lucky that i've had some pretty good commutes over my career i think the lowest walk i ever had was about 15 minutes for a while back then when i was when i was at reddington and they were near old street i had a flat for a while just north of there and about 15 minute walk that's um, pretty good but, but yeah that was it was good and i did like that but and there's no in there it's three not three it's, it's, Trump, Trump it's everything. good but it's not three <laughs> Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, welcome to Investment Uncut with Mary and Dan. This week, we are chatting about a project that we were working on for quite a lot of the summer, weren't we, Mary? That was a project about climate risk for UK investors that Mary and I were were co-authors on, and it was great to get that released last week. Joining us for that discussion, one of our other co-authors on that project, Lassia Shakerum. Lassia, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much for having me again. Not sure how I managed that. (laughs) Well, you were so brilliant the first time. And for listeners that don't remember, last year joined us on an episode about Rebel Ideas. It was a book review episode right at the start of this year, which was fantastic. So please do check that one out. We usually ask people to give a sense of their role. And obviously you did that last time. But given your role's changed a little bit, I thought maybe we'd just get you to reintroduce what your role is now. I'm an investment consultant at LCP and I also chair the LCP Multicultural Network. But a new part of my role, which I've started a couple of months ago, is that I'm now part of our responsible investment research team. So I'm very excited about this report that we've been working on and all the findings from that. 
Fantastic. And that made you such a good choice to be involved in writing this report and to come back on today. The second question we usually ask is what we should know about you that we won't find on your CV. I suspect this one will appear on your CV. But since we spoke to last year previously, she's qualified as a CFA charter holder. So congratulations last year. Thank you. It's a big relief. After having the exam cancelled multiple times, it's good to finally be done. Yeah, congrats. I heard the pass rate. They really went down, didn't they, in the last year or so, some of the CFA levels? I think they have. They've just changed the format just to add even more confusion to the world right now. Why not? (laughs) That's great. We're done with it now, so that's what matters. More time to spend studying climate risk. (laughs) Indeed, which brings us beautifully to the topic of conversation today. And so Dan mentioned right at the start that the work we were doing over the summer was effectively a study of climate risk within UK institutional portfolios. Dan, do you want to just give a quick overview of the reason why we even bothered doing this? One consistent piece of feedback that we keep seeming to get from colleagues and from other advisors, there were a couple of things that were sort of missing in the discussion around climate risk generally. And one was just a really simple high-level frameworks to allow people just to start to grapple with the question, literally that first conversation, how to identify what things to look at. And the second one was sort of really tangible next steps that people could take in the portfolios. A lot of the discussion has revolved around things like statements of investment principles, putting in place beliefs, putting in place policies, risk registers, getting governance right. And that's all fine. And a lot of that's regulated, but a lot of people are saying, well, what are the real things we can actually do? So there was a bit of a gap there to try and fill those two things, give a really high level framework just to get people started on the conversations and then show that there were some really tangible next steps people could be taking in portfolios if they wanted to go further. Nice. And I guess so simple and tangible are both key areas we'll cover today. Maybe we'll start with the simple. And last year, could you maybe just give the listeners an overview of the way that we classified different asset classes for this study? What we did when we went through each asset class that the various investors are invested in is we assigned a tier to them. And that was based on a couple of different things. So one was what the carbon intensity or carbon equivalent intensity was for that asset class. So for example, looking at bonds or equities in general, trying to understand how carbon intensive those asset classes are overall. So that was one factor that played into sort of the tier that we gave our asset classes. The other was just the availability of data though, because for some asset classes like within private markets or within multi-asset funds, it can be quite difficult to acquire data on the carbon or the other kind of climate related factors within that asset class. And actually not having that data is a risk in itself because you're not really able to understand how carbon intensive the asset class is. So those were the two key things that fed into how we categorize the asset classes into various climate risk tiers. I suppose part of the point of that is intended to be simple, wasn't it? I was a bit torn on that. I would have loved to have gone a level more detail and start looking into the detail of portfolios and sectors and those sort of things. But I guess that was partly what we were trying to do was something that just anyone could pick up and use as a very first starting point. And there's much more sophisticated analysis you can do. But that was sort of the starting point. Was And I actually, I was sort of pleasantly surprised how far that got us in terms of some quite helpful conclusions and thinking points that people will hopefully find useful. Absolutely. And in a minute, I suppose we'll go to what the sort of what the key findings were from that analysis. But I wanted to, I guess, just stress a point that Lassie just made in terms of data, because I think that's a really interesting point. There's so much focus on where we can measure things and so little focus historically on where we're struggling to measure things. But that doesn't mean that risks don't exist in that area. So actually the way that we then said, actually, that's a higher risk tier because there's so much we don't know about it. I think for me, that was quite different to what I'd seen elsewhere in the market. You're right. There's a tendency just to sort of leave things out because they're too hard. But I think 
and that's not that helpful because maybe you need to leave it in. It's an unknown. So even if you can't put a number on it, you need to have it in the conversation. Absolutely. Okay, well, shall we talk about the key findings then of the report, which obviously we should have said at the start, we'll link to the report, of course, in the show notes. So lastly, do you want to give a kind of just very high level overview of where we were coming out in terms of client risk levels and that sort of thing? Sure. So I think there were lots of interesting things that came out of this study. I think if we looked overall at kind of all of the investment portfolios, we found that actually a lot of the time we've been focusing on equities. But these days, there are many investors that hold more in corporate bonds compared to equity. So actually, we found that four in five UK institutional investors today hold more in bonds than they do in equities. And that made us realize that actually an area that we should be applying more focus to is bonds for climate risk. Another thing that was actually really surprising to me was just how many investors could make some quite simple changes to their portfolio to really reduce their climate risk. And we actually found that 90% of the investors in our study could make two pretty straightforward changes to drastically reduce the level of climate risk in their portfolios. Nice. We'll talk about those changes a little bit later because I think that gets to the tangible in Dan's simple, tangible description. Based on our tiering system, we did give kind of scores to each asset class and use that to come up with an overall score for an investment portfolio. And based on that scoring, we actually found that half of the investors in our sample do have significant climate risk. So it is clear that climate risk is one of the biggest risks that people face in their portfolios. And this is no longer being seen as just kind of an ethical or a nice to have thing to consider. It is a key financial risk that clearly many, many investors need to be considering. Absolutely. And this simple framework will be released to the market later this month. So other investors will be able to see how they stack up against the wider market. But I was really, really interested in the report in the four profiles that we sort of came up with. So when we're trying to sort of, it's all very well looking at averages, but as we discussed actually in our last podcast episode with you last year, there's a danger with using averages because sometimes it can mask some of the detail underneath. You've already pulled out, I think, a couple of the trends in terms of more corporate bond exposure than equities and and that sort of thing. Perhaps it's helpful to just give a quick description of each of those four profiles because then investors or listeners will be able to kind of identify with one or other of them. Sure. So as you said, We looked at all the investors in our data set and we split these each into four categories. And this was based on the kinds of things they were invested in. So the four categories were growth. So these were investors that had a significant amount of their assets in equities, multi-asset portfolios, private markets, targeting those higher returns. For these sorts of investors, equity risk was one of their key risks when it comes to climate because that's where they had a high allocation to. Then the next category that we introduced was diversified. This was basically investors that had quite a big mix of different asset classes. So they would have some in private markets, some in multi-assets, probably more than the growth category would have, but again, some in equity and corporate bonds. And for these investors, because they did have that larger allocation to private markets and multi-asset, that lack of transparency of data was one of their biggest risks. So it's quite interesting to see that these two investor profiles actually experience their climate risk from different places. Then the other categories we had was the low risk one. This was the category where a very large proportion of the investors in our data set fell into. These were investors that had a significant proportion of their assets in corporate bonds and government bonds. And again, for these investors, it made more sense to focus on the climate risk within their bond portfolios compared to their equities, because that's where most of their assets are. The fourth category were cash flow matched investors. So this category was predominantly dominated by UK defined benefit pension schemes that predominantly hold gilts and other assets that are designed to match their liabilities. 
One thing that I find really interesting when we think about those four profiles, so just to recap, you've got growth diversified, they're both much more sort of return seeking, and then you've got low risk and cash flow matched. And it is really interesting because clearly the type of risk, the type of climate risk that they're exposed to is different. The type of overall level of risk that they're exposed to is different. But when you then think about capacity for taking risk or willingness to take risk, that also varies across those four profiles. So you might expect an individual investor that's quite young and isn't looking to use their money for a long time to be in more of the sort of growth category. They're just generally willing to take more risk in total, but they might be more focused on climate risk and want to reduce that. When you start looking at the low risk and the cash flow matched, it's kind of even if they don't care about climate risk, they shouldn't be taking any risk at all. So it's really interesting just thinking about that kind of willingness to take risk. So even if the profile of climate risk has changed, there are still really strong reasons why those latter two categories should be focusing on this risk, because it is still just a risk that they are running that potentially previously hasn't really been sort of financially considered in the same way. And that's how this analysis helps, I guess. I certainly felt that, again, that relatively simple way of profiling, segmenting the universe actually led to some really interesting conclusions. And certainly some of the stuff there surprised me, surprised me quite how many of the investors in the data set fell into that low risk sort of camp where we were saying, like, you've really got to start focusing on corporate bonds here. As you say, I think a lot of the discussion tends to focus on equities. Growth investors do have a lot of equities, but they're also probably got a bigger risk appetite. There's risk there, but that's kind of reasonably well known i think at this point i think it was more the other areas where we were saying well if you're diversified that's obviously good from an investment perspective but it could mean you've got private markets you've got multi-asset you might really have a bit of a lack of transparency of what's actually going on there and the low risk front you've got corporate bonds which are low investment risk but as we said in the piece that quite high allocations quite often to the utilities sector which is one of the most challenging ones from a climate transition perspective you're not set to get much upside from those asset classes either so it's definitely one to really focus on. So I guess that was a big message, wasn't it? It was this kind of this low risk group. It's a big and probably growing proportion of investors in the UK, very interested in corporate bonds. And that really is where you should focus on there for, for looking at climate risk. Absolutely. So should we maybe move to the tangible? So we've got all this data. We've done the sort of, I guess, portfolio triage, if you like, and we've got a climate risk score. Lastly, you mentioned 90% roughly in the study, could improve their score from a position of significant risk with a couple of relatively simple tweaks. Do you want to maybe just describe what they are at a high level and then we'll delve in? So yeah, out of this kind of 90% cohort of investors who we think could make two straightforward steps to reduce their climate risk, most of these would have either some allocation to equities or some allocation to corporate bonds. And actually within these two asset classes, there are quite straightforward steps that can be taken to reduce the climate risk that they're exposed to. So for example, by switching into a climate tilted version of the funds that they're currently in, which do exist, and I know we do a lot of work in that area, they can make quite a straightforward step to keep a similar risk profile profile, similar return profile, but actually not have that same exposure to those carbon intensive sectors that are increasing their climate risk. And the same can be said for bonds as well, which, as Dan said, because of the way that they are allocated sector wise at the moment, your kind of standard corporate bond fund can have quite a high carbon exposure. So making that switch to a more climate tilted version of the fund that otherwise operates in the same way can be a really straightforward step to just reduce your climate risk within your corporate bond mandate. It's pretty important to say that focusing on carbon emissions is a reasonable starting point as a proxy for climate risk. We were trying to move beyond that, I think, reasonably quickly because there's a number of ways that's a little bit broad and only a very small part of the picture. Partly because carbon emissions are always backward looking. It's a bit like a company reported earnings, isn't it? Not telling you much about the future growth of the business, just looking at last year's accounts. 
Same thing with the mission. So we talked a little bit, I think, in the piece about how we're working with asset managers. Asset managers are looking at other angles. Talked about a few. There's quite a body of knowledge available now in, in, in the sort of climate investing world, which looks to make a judgment about these business plans on a forward-looking basis, particularly in these really tricky sectors like utilities. You find quite big differences within the sector between companies that are taking a really forward-looking perspective on their future investment, their business plans, and how they hope to transition others who aren't. So they might have the same emissions today, but potentially quite different risk sort of in the future. So I guess, particularly on the corporate bond side, you want to be looking at mandates and funds that are really taking that into account and have a really good view on alignment in these sectors like utilities, like industrials that just are going to be quite carbon intensive today. And we discussed that in an episode with our colleague Sham earlier this year. I believe we also discussed the climate tilted equity approach with Claire Jones. I forget if it was late last year or early this year, but again, we can link to that in the show notes. I guess particularly on the corporate bond side, I know Sham was very keen to stress this is not just green bonds. This is, as Dan just described, it's the alignment. It's the activity of a normal company in inverted brackets, not just green bonds. What you find, which is quite strange, is quite often you might find two corporate bonds from similar companies offering a similar sort of spread or yield to each other. But actually one company has a much better forward-looking business plan with respect to carbon than the other one. And so there, I think you really can ask the question to say, well, hang on, is that risk actually being priced properly between those two bonds? And if you start looking at it in this sense, you probably would want to be in that second category of company where they've got that forward-looking plan. I think that brings around quite an interesting point around when it comes to climate change, we're not only looking at the risks, but actually, if you focus on those companies that are doing better, there are opportunities to get some good returns from companies that are aligned with positive climate goals. And we talk about that as well in the paper. So read it. (laughs) (laughs) Good plug there. I like it. (laughs) So I suppose we've been talking about those simple steps that you can take within asset classes. Of course, there is a huge drive at the moment also for what's been sort of termed net zero targets. There is a whole section that talks about that in our paper as well. And I know we've also recorded previous podcast episodes on that. So that our show notes will be littered with plugs for our own material. <laughs> but Dan, do you maybe want to just give a quick overview of what the key points were on that side? Yeah, well, it's been really interesting, isn't it? I mean, net zero is a sort of a concept that's just absolutely taken off. I mean, it's kind of, you just see it all over the place now in the press and websites sort of every day. It's almost like an everyday topic of discussion, whereas even when we've just a few months ago, it wasn't there. So and obviously, there's a decent amount of criticism that, that comes along with that as well. But you know, I think at a high level, the way to think about it is that net zero is a huge movement towards a lower carbon economy, lower carbon transition. And as an investor, by aligning yourself with that, you're reducing your risks that could occur by not being aligned with that, whether deliberately or unconsciously, you're creating risks because that transition is looking like it's pretty likely to happen. And so you don't want to be sort of swimming against the tide. You want to be trying to align with it as early as you can, basically. And and you could argue that investors have this, we've talked about this before, I think, have this kind of slightly removed perspective and the investors own companies which do the carbon emissions. So it's not like you're directly impacting that, but you can send a really strong signal to the companies to say, look, we want you to be part of this net zero thing in order to be investable. And that's quite a powerful thing as well, because as well as looking after your own risks, if enough investors say that, it's going to create a real world change and it's going to really push companies to adopt those targets. Along a similar sort of line, for me, the biggest buzzword recently in that spectrum is the just transition. So the idea that actually transition needs to happen full stop. But is there a way of achieving transition that doesn't disadvantage, for example, emerging economies that haven't had the opportunity to emerge in a world where 
people weren't focused on emissions. And there are loads of examples on the sort of environmental and also the social side of things in relation to that, which I think is, as you said, Dan, investors have sometimes been sort of one step removed, but actually the power that they have and the influence they have, and therefore the responsibility that they have is really being talked about a lot more, which is in itself a very good thing, but obviously action then needs to come to make sure that that happens. I think the just transition really goes beyond thinking about, is it possible to consider the wider society? And that actually says that in order for climate transition to be successful, you have to consider the wider society. It's really proving to us how much governments, financial institutions, investors, and just the general public and society, we don't exist in separate silos and everything we do does influence each other. And actually something that is set out in the net zero asset manager initiative, which I think you've talked about on previous podcasts, is that asset managers need to consider the just transition when they're setting out their climate steps and make sure that any transition takes along the workforce with us, keeps in mind the overall impact on communities and on people in society. And that's the only way for climate transition to be successful. That is a really important point that, yeah, the just transition is necessary for there to be enough political support for the whole thing to happen in a good way. So yeah, like I said last year, it's a great illustration of political, sort of social and economic realms all being overlapped, which is half the point of ESG investing, isn't it? It's kind of saying that we used to live in this slightly weird world where we, people believed that the economy was kind of living in its own thing and completely insulated from everything else. Whereas half the point of ESG is saying, well, hang on, we've got to place it in a broader context of social and political spheres. Another area that we focus a bit on in our report, although it really refers back to a previous report that, Dan, you were a co-author of, is opportunities. So we've scratched the surface a little bit in today's episode in terms of where we're tilting portfolios. We're both trying to avoid risks and exploit opportunities. But clearly, there are going to be some winners from the transition that occurs, hopefully in a very just way, as we've just been saying. But perhaps, Dan, you're probably best placed to talk a bit around opportunities, particularly at the sort of overall asset class and sector level. Yeah, I mean, at a high level, a point we made a few times, I think, is we're on the verge of probably one of the largest flows of capital that we're ever going to see in our lifetime sort of thing as, as part of this. This is happening and the flows of capital are going to be huge. So it would be a bit strange if there weren't opportunities that were sort of thrown up by that. People ought to be alive to them and should be considering them. Those opportunities might look a bit different, I guess, to the sort of investments they might have been used to in the past. So I suppose part of the message is to to stay open-minded. But the piece we wrote before was very much focused on the energy sector. Lots of listeners will probably be familiar with some of the aspects of that energy transition in the UK. We've obviously built a lot of offshore wind already. There's lots more of that coming. That's a relatively well-known asset now, really. I mean, it's, it's amazing to think 10 years ago, I remember seeing a presentation on offshore wind and it was kind of like, what on earth is this? Like, is this something people could ever invest in? Now it's almost a conventional asset class. It's a lot more opportunities to invest in that. But lots of other areas that could follow that similar path. So things like battery storage, things like hydrogen, even nuclear. Um, talk of the government changing some of the support regimes there could create investable assets that investors could end up investing in, whether through funds or through individual accounts. Some of them would be private market sort of assets. A big part of the paper we wrote earlier in the year was saying to the government that it might make sense to recognise the sort of the makeup of, of investors, as we said in this piece. UK asset owners have a lot of money in corporate bonds. So it would be nice to bring forward assets that fitted that profile rather than always offering kind of equity or venture capital type assets. There's some, in my view, some fairly obvious ways they could do that, including using the National Infrastructure Bank, the new bank that's been set up to back bond issues that would support some of these investments, which would then be pretty safe bonds offering a little bit of yield 
as we keep saying, that's what UK investors are looking for. So why not try and match the assets towards that? So I don't know if we'll see much around that in the run-up to COP26, but I think that could be a really positive thing for investors if, if some real thought goes into that. And I suppose thinking back to the, some of the risks that last year mentioned right at the start, and one of those being data availability and the lack of it quite often in private markets, obviously that plays through to the comments you just made, Dan, in terms of it's all very well having a big opportunity in a space if the only way of accessing that is through the private markets, yes, maybe in these private markets, there is better data, but you still have that challenge of the forced availability of data, I suppose, in those markets and the challenge that that therefore places on investors in getting comfortable with an investment before they make the move. It does beg a question about obviously investing in private markets has been a huge trend over the last decade in, in our world. I mean, this is an area where the transparency of the public markets is definitely in your favour here and is sort of helping you. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that sort of plays out. I personally do think that private markets managers could really step up a little bit here and really help investors understand what's going on. I don't think fundamentally there's any reason why that couldn't happen. It's just that the public markets have had that transparency forced upon them. It's actually been really helpful. It does look like the private markets may also be getting that trans or a bit more transparency forced upon them with new TCFD reporting requirements and stuff. So maybe that will make it easier for investors. I wonder if that moves us to the kind of what next. So we've littered, I think, today's episode with a few sort of tangible examples, but maybe should we just summarize what we're saying different groups can do about all of this? So I guess firstly, investors, obviously, this whole study was centered on investors. Last year highlighted the two sort of relatively simple changes that can be done within existing strategic allocations. Clearly, there's also transition that could happen for investors as well. And the idea of investigating opportunities. Managers, investment managers, apart from providing better data, what else is there in terms of what managers can do better? One thing managers can do is think about the way that they're reporting their data and ensure there is some kind of standardization of that. Because obviously, investors don't just care about what one part of their portfolio is doing. They need to understand what their overall portfolio is doing and be able to aggregate that data together. So that's definitely one area. And then also think about kind of reporting other metrics apart from just carbon exposure. So looking at having science-based targets. Again, thinking about other just standardized metrics that all managers can provide together that can then be aggregated. And I suppose headline there is take it seriously because people do care. People do want the data. So provide the data, but also integrate these sorts of risks and opportunities within your process, which some managers are doing very well already. And then I think others are huge laggards at the moment. Yeah. And I mean, not just the data, but just people are taking climate risk very seriously now. And people are realizing that there's no point saving if there's not a planet to retire into. So that is the message that managers have to take on board. Yeah. I mean, and one we put in the paper, wasn't it, was, was managers helping their clients understand how they think about climate risk. I think it's the important bit. It's, it's not just about chucking a couple of extra numbers onto a fact sheet and saying, right, there you go. Those are our numbers sort of thing. And aren't they great? I've had some great discussions with managers where you realize there's been an awful lot of thought and an incredible amount of insight that's gone into the portfolio and, and others where that conversation hasn't happened. I, I don't know whether that's happening or not. So I think managers being clearer about how they're thinking about their companies and whether they're aligned or not, whether their plans are good enough, whether they think they're going to meet their targets. Are they just the kind of are the targets just hot air? Are they just rubbish? Or are they real targets they might meet? I think it'd be really helpful to have that conversation. Lastly, one thing I was going to ask, and I know you've had, I think you've sent this to a couple of clients already. What sort of conversations have you had with clients around it? What are people saying? How do you think it's being received? So first of all, my parents really liked it. So that's <laughs> an important thing. 
I've had a number of different conversations with clients about it. So we've sent the report on to them. I'll definitely be sending this podcast episode on too when that comes out. I guess one of the things that stood out the most to them was the fact there were these two just straightforward steps that they could do, especially for slightly smaller clients or smaller investors that don't have the resource to do loads of analysis themselves. Just being able to categorize themselves into a group and look at, okay, what's the step that I could take? So for example, shifting their corporate bond mandate to something more sustainably focused, that's led to lots of really, really positive and interesting conversations where we've looked at their portfolios and, and we'll be thinking about how to adjust that. That's a really, really good point last year, isn't it? That this is not just a trend for big investors. It's not something that's only available to the largest. It's really those small steps at least are really available to anyone. I've had lots of really interesting and positive conversations with some of my clients. But Dan, I know lots of the stuff that you share on LinkedIn sparks some quite interesting debate. Have you had any interesting or any constructive comments back that perhaps are less positive on the report? I think it is important to address some of this. There is, I would say, quite a lot of criticism around about ESG strategies at the moment from various quarters. We've seen it covered in the FT and some quite high profile people sort of saying that ESG investing has no effect basically in the real world. I'm sure they would levy that challenge at this report. We're sort of advocating some of the approaches that they tend to criticize. I do want to take a moment to try and respond to that. I don't think that's true. I think that that's potentially even a little bit disingenuous, some of those comments. But the argument is often that they make is that basically shuffling around equity ownership in the secondary market doesn't do anything. So if I invest in a fund that simply sells some dirty companies to someone else, that has no impact on the actual companies because it's all secondary market stuff. And that is sort of true, but it's really a narrow view of what's going on there and then leaves out some really important stuff. So firstly, it leaves out voting and engagement. Maybe we'll come back to that in a second, but that's a really powerful tool investors have. Investors can determine the makeup of the board. They can vote against remuneration. They can vote against business plans. And that did happen, obviously, earlier this year at Exxon. So clearly having funds that have real power and voting power can get other investors on board as well. That's real change that, that really happens. But even beyond that, there's so many other ways in which investors are able to set common standards and then hold the companies accountable to meeting them that does matter. And yes, they might have to keep disinvestment back as a sort of a last resort, as a stick, if you like, but that's on the way to try to make these companies meet the standard. And I think that that to me is a lot of what this sort of kind of investing can really achieve, basically saying to companies, for example, to be investable, you need to have a net zero target in place. There's going to be a point where we're not going to invest in companies that don't have a target. That, I think, would be a really helpful first step because only about 20% of companies out there actually have a target in the first place. So by pushing on that, I think that's the standard that will become a market standard and that creates a real world change. And the final point to make is just actually on corporate bonds because corporate bonds are different to equities. A lot of time in corporate bonds, you're participating in primary market bond issuance or debt refinancing. So it's primary capital. You're not just buying and selling them off someone else. You are participating in a process that's being issued by the company. And so, for example, if a manager refuses to participate in that because the company doesn't have a good target for net zero or something, that's denying them primary capital. That's capital that would have been going into the business to do whatever they're doing that's now not. So those companies are now getting less capital than they would have been if they had the target. And that, I think, it clearly does drive kind of real-world impact. In some ways, it's interesting, in some ways, corporate bond investors you can argue how actually have more power than equity because they have that tool. The equity side does have the voting. So a lot of reasons why I don't have much time for that sort of criticism, but probably important to respond to that. That is really interesting, isn't it? Because historically, the market has always said that it's equity holders that have that extra power. And actually, in terms of this new issuance, it's actually shifting that balance, which is very interesting. 
But maybe we do come back to the voting point because it is important on the equity side, the voting and the sort of stewardship angle. So last year, do you have any thoughts on that? It's really interesting what you're saying about kind of corporate bonds having as much influence as equities or influence in a different way, because there's actually been a new stewardship code that's been released. So last week, the signatories of the UK 2020 stewardship code was released. So that was updated from the previous 2012 version. And in the 2012 version, stewardship, which is kind of all about the responsible allocation of capital for the long-term benefits of a sustainable economy. In the previous version of the stewardship code, that focused on voting rights within equities, and it was mainly, you know, only relevant to equity holders. But actually, in this new version, it looks at, you know, engagement more generally, and it does cover all asset classes. And it does talk about how engagement within all asset classes has the ability to be really, really powerful. So it's absolutely worth looking at whether your managers, whether your consultants are signed up or signatories of the UK Stewardship Code 2020, because that does show that they have these policies in place to engage with managers, not just in equities, but in all sorts of different asset classes. And as Stan said, that can be a really important first step before divestment to actually have those conversations and make sure you're using the power that investors have collectively to make positive change. I felt for a long while during my career, it sort of was a bit unfashionable voting or something, wasn't it? I guess it just didn't really, well, it just wasn't really interesting to people because I suppose it wasn't generating returns. And so it just really went down the priority order and in some cases just got completely ignored. It's perhaps easy to forget that as an investor, you're not just a passenger on this. You're actually the owner of the company and you do have the power to determine the board to vote on the remuneration for the executive team. And you can use that to, to sort of really change things. And even if you're a relatively small investor, if you're putting your weight of even a small investment behind a manager who can then engage or vote with a large weight behind them, it really does make a difference. I know we're not quite at the recommendation section, but one of our guests in our season two finale recommended the book Nudge, which I have to admit I'm only about five pages into, but it's very good so far. And it's all this sort of thing. It's actually, if you want to drive true change in behaviour, you can achieve that with nudges. And some of this feels very much like that sort of context that you will make a difference. It might start small, but actually if it starts changing behaviour at a top level, that will have a really big impact long term. And then I think what we're seeing is that the engagement strategies of asset managers are now a competitive differentiator for asset managers. We're now selecting managers on the basis of that. Managers are marketing themselves and explaining to their underlying investors how they approach that, how they decide what to vote on, how they prioritise these issues, how they decide which sort of resolution to support and stuff. I think mean, that's great. And I suppose it's just so strange that we kind of went missing for the best part of 20 years, but, but now it's something that's a competitive battleground for asset managers and and quite rightly so, I think. Absolutely. As we come towards the end of this episode, last year, what's the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away? Probably the one thing is that addressing climate risk isn't something that's only for the really large investors. Small investors can do it too. And there are some quite simple and tangible steps they can take to do that. We'll let you have that as one thing. I think <laughs> linked <Thanks>. enough. <laughs> what do you think that is the most underappreciated thing about investing? About investing in general, I think it's the influence and power of investing. I mean, whether you agree with this or not, in principle, money does talk. And no matter whether you're a huge investor or a small investor, you can align your investments or engage in a way that does have real tangible impacts. I mean, we've seen that recently with the Make My Money Matter campaign, which is targeted at individual DC investors. People can really use their investments to enact positive change, and it does have a lot of power, potentially more power than just 
cutting down on flying or eating vegan or those kind of things. And last year, we've just got to the end of the summer and you qualified, so you must have heaps of free time. Is there any reading that you've done over the summer that you'd like to share with listeners? Yeah, I mean, I may have just qualified, but for some reason I've signed up to do another exam on climate change and investing. So that's (laughs) all fun and games. But I will recommend a podcast I listened to last week. It's by Stories of Our Times, which they do various podcasts every day. And the episode is called COP26, The Road to Glasgow. So some of you might have heard about COP26. It's this big United Nations climate change conference generally takes place every year but didn't happen last year and it's taking place in Glasgow this year in November and there's going to be hopefully a lot of great decisions made about how we transition to this brilliant climate-friendly economy but the reason I thought this podcast was really interesting is they talked a lot about what actually happens behind closed doors and what happened during the Paris one of these back in 2015 and there's actually just a lot of theatrics and drama that happens behind the doors and it's quite interesting to hear about all of that so I definitely recommend giving that a That sounds really interesting. And last year, were you on another podcast as well? Was it a radio show you were on? I was, yeah. I went on Thumble Radio with Sir Steve Webb talking about how people from minority ethnic groups can find out about their pension rights. So definitely check that out. Incredible. Sounds really interesting. Last year, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for having me. That's all we've got time for today on Investment Uncut, but do join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.